EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Oya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is April 4th. My colleague Toria Rainey and I talked to German sociologist Wolfgang Streck. He's the Director Emeritus at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne, Germany. My name is Wolfgang Streck. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a sociologist. Can you tell us about your connection to Europe? I'm European. I, I live in Europe, in, in many ways in the center of Western Europe, near Cologne. I'm a sociologist. I used to be director of the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne. Now I'm, uh, let's say, nominally retired. But I do. Uh, re- being retired is wonderful because you can do what you want. Wonderful. What is the future emerging in Europe? It's a bleak future, uh, unless some very uh, difficult decisions are are taken and they must be taken very soon. Uh, uh, In my view, the the extent of the depth of integration has proceeded too far, uh, especially since the countries that are now members of the European Union or of the European Monetary Union are very different from one another. They are very different economic, political, historical background. As a result of which, the idea that they could be governed uh, by a common regime, one size fits all, is uh, uh, impracticable. The the Brexit was the first first moment when when this really became relevant, but other countries are uh, even worse uh, in or even more affected uh, by this problem. In all European countries, you now have a sort of uh, domestic opposition to internationalization because they fear, or a part of the population fears, that their impact on their national governments will be diminished and that national governments will become instruments of a supranational either culture or financial industry or whatever. And people have, in, la- in the last two years, in astonishing speed, uh, sort of switched political alliances, destroyed the center-left parties of, of Western Europe, and shifted to uh, the new nationalist right-wing parties. Why do you see this rise in nationalism across Europe? Why yeah, do you think that I, happens? I don't want to call this uh, nationalism because I associate with nationalism hostility against other peoples. Uh, what I see in, in, in a way, I think, uh, the, the, basically the European center-left parties have left a space uh, for uh, where uh, uh, certain issues that were important to a large part of the population were no longer debated or discussed. It had something to do with internationalization. Internationalization or globalization so it meant that you had to liberalize your domestic economies and there was sort of a one, uh, one-size-fits-all recipe. Open markets, uh, free trade, uh, free migration, uh, everything uh, 
that that's to some extent worked well and to another extent negatively affected large segments of the population. And since the the question of the disadvantages of integration or globalization was not really raised in official discourse because the center-right and the center-left were basically completely agreed on, on, on it. Uh, right? the sort of, there is no alternative uh, policy. Then this space that was evacuated uh, was filled by uh, groups that uh, placed their hopes on a restoration of national autonomy. You may call this nationalism, but um, uh, at the first glance, I think it is, it is uh, basically a democratic uh, reaction of despair uh, with, a, with an international regime that uh, uh, neglects a broad range of interests that are present in these peoples. What is your perception of democracy and what role do you see it playing in the emerging future in Europe? Um, I would, the, if I talk about the future, I, I would think that uh, in many ways, like what the Brexit, uh, what was behind the Brexit, greater accountability of uh, national governments to their electorates and a uh, renewed uh, pressure on national politics to listen to the concerns of their uh, voters, rather than fend off these concerns and tell them that under uh, what have you, the World Trade Agreement or the, the Euro, uh, we can't do anything else. You, you have to shoulder the burden. The, the problem is worse uh, in European Monetary Union, where you uh, squeeze under one, under one common monetary regime, uh, countries that uh, function economically in very different ways. Uh, so, for example, the French always needed a big budget deficit in order to, to grow their economy, because French society, political economy, is state-heavy. Uh, the Italians needed a relatively high rate of inflation, uh, because uh, there they were basically consumption-driven, a consumption-driven economy. Uh, whereas Germany is an export-driven economy, and the Germans need uh, very low inflation. Yeah? So if you squeeze all of these under one common monetary regime, then in this case the Germans win and the others lose. And, and, uh, and that winning and losing is combined with a European policy that tells the Mediterranean countries in particular that they have to make structural reforms in order to become like the Germans. But I tell you, they don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> and I think for good reasons, be, because their societies are in, in balance on different sort of ways of, uh, of doing the economy or even in different cultural uh, values. And, and so I think uh, uh, that a restoration or a some sort of restoration of monetary sovereignty that is uh, in some way splitting the common currency so that these countries can do what they always did and they did very well with it, that is devalue their currency against the German mark uh, if, if the situation became too difficult. Yeah? They no longer can do this. And what we have in the European Monetary Union is a gold standard regime worse than a gold standard regime because historically under a gold standard you could cheat. Here you cannot cheat. It's one currency, right? 
And uh, John Maynard Keynes, I think, was the one who discovered in the 1930s that, I quote, a gold standard is not compatible with democracy. Yeah? Because uh, under a gold standard, uh, certain so-called structural changes, like liberalization of labor markets, become absolutely uh, inevitable. Otherwise, you can't compete. But if you don't want them, uh, if, if your population is against them, then begin. Then you have governments like in Italy. You had let's last four or five governments. They sort of <laughs> the, stayed in power for half a year, then they disappeared because they tried to implement these reforms, but they couldn't. Their population resisted. We know that behind behind globalization and internationalization, we had Europe has um, this uh, neoliberal policies and ideology, yeah. which was, I mean, politicians were using it to back their policies. So what do you think is going to come to replace if, as you're saying, it's no longer accommodates all member states and it's not going to work anymore? So what do you think, What, how they can now try to differently address the current situation? Yeah, see, I, um, uh, I, I would want to put the European problems uh, into the general picture of the general problem of uh, what I call post-growth capitalism. Yeah. Uh, we live in a world in which uh, across the OECD uh, uh, countries you have rapidly increasing debt, uh, declining growth and rising inequality, not just in Europe but across the board. Yeah. So then uh, to me I'm, I'm, I'm older than you, so I have a shorter time horizon, so to speak. To me, um, uh, the, last, the next 10 years are interesting. There you cannot talk about a general solution, to, because I think there is no solution that would put this world to, uh, uh, to, to rest. Yes, This world has become extremely ungovernable. Then the question becomes, what can different peoples with their uh, institutional... Uh, uh, equipment, so to speak. What can they hope to achieve for themselves uh, in the next, tur the turbulent next year, next ten years, in which nobody knows how this uh, uh, strange uh, animal, uh, post-growth capitalism, will will develop. And there, this is sort of contested in in many interesting ways. Uh, if you look at small countries like Denmark that are not uh, part of the European Monetary Union. They are doing extremely well. Switzerland is doing extremely well. Uh, Sweden is also doing well. Norway even better. Norway isn't in, in, is not even in European Monetary, not even in European Union. And, and you can say because they have the oil, but that's, not, that's only half of the answer. Because the Norwegians uh, commanding national sovereignty were able not to spend, to, to, to forbid themselves, so to speak, to spend the oil money. The oil money goes into a sovereign wealth fund, uh, which they invest all over the place. The, they don't consume it, they invest it, yes? If they were a province of a larger country, that would not be possible. The, the central government would not allow them to do this, you see? So, so sometimes being small is an advantage, and being... Uh, being small plus autonomous. You can also say, uh, for others, it is good to be big, like Germany. Germany enormously benefits from European Monetary Union. Why? Because it has a captive market for its 
cars and machines, uh, and, and the Italians and the French and whoever else are now no longer able to devalue against uh, the German competitiveness. And, and in addition, uh, their economies are depressing, as Donald Trump, um, among others, has correctly observed, are depressing the value of the euro. So we, Germany, are operating at an exchange rate with the rest of the world, which is much, much more advantageous to us than it would be if we had only the German uh, uh, currency. You understand? So uh, the, what you see in Europe, I interpret in terms of a uh, new problem of the optimal scale of governance in a globalized economy. Where is governance to, to take place? At, at the central level for everybody uh, or uh, in smaller units? Yeah? Smaller units, if I may say that, uh, speaking in terms of political economy, they have the advantage that they can focus on a sector and then develop that sector. For example, like Denmark, consulting, logistics, and so on. They, they don't have to have all uh, uh, sectors in their economy. But for that, they need free trade, because otherwise that specialization wouldn't work. It's also a disadvantage for them if, in, in case, uh, that the sector on which they specialize gets into a global crisis. That happened to Finland. Finland sort of came into Western Europe after the end of the Soviet Union, and it was basically pulp, uh, wood machinery, uh, wood processing machinery, forestry, and so on. And within a matter of 20 years, they became enormously, they made enormous progress. They became basically identical with Nokia, which was this electronics uh, uh, firm. Now, Nokia, for some reason, is in big, in big trouble. And as a result of this, the whole country is in big trouble because they have... Had they had a broader portfolio for which they would have been, had, had to be larger, you, you understand the logic and the reasoning be, behind this. So these questions are basically uh, dilemmatic, as I call them. Uh, and, and so you have to sort of improvise your way uh, through them, uh, because what you cannot assume is that in the next 10, 20 years there will be a stabilization of the, of, of the global economy on the model of the Bretton Woods uh, agreement that would give everybody certainty as to what is going to happen next. That is not going to come to pass, especially not in the rivalry between uh, America and China and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the wavering of the American government between protectionism and expansionism. The, when will this end? We don't know. And then just to wrap up, um, a couple, couple final things. Um, what kind of future would you like to see in Europe? And how do you think citizens can partake in that? Yeah, uh, see, I'm, I'm a, uh, I've, I've observed politics for uh, 40 years. And uh, so my capacity for optimism is very limited. Yeah. Also, my, uh, also, I don't think that what I want to be the case will necessarily happen. So, as a social scientist, I think my job is to point to problems rather than expressing my desires concerning their solution. I could simply say, I want everybody to be happy. That's what I want. And then you would be happy about my uh, uh, pious wishes for, for everyone. But that is not what uh, a social scientist is, is supposed to do. We're not entertainers. 
if, if you want to be happy, go to the movies and watch La La Land. Yeah? But don't ask me. <laughs> Thank you so much for this interesting conversation. <laughs> been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.